HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $175 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. Each episode, we want to share the stories behind the products made and sold by our members who are helping shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, Julie Gallagher, Content Director at SFA. We're excited to bring you today's episode and so happy to be working with Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture, and expanding the way eaters think about food. Today's guest is Danny Zukovicki, member and community manager at The Hatchery, an incubator with 54 private kitchens and one shared commercial space. Since joining, she's helped hundreds of entrepreneurs navigate the business of food. She's also the winner of the Specialty Food Association's 2023 Leadership Award for Emerging Leader. Welcome, Danny. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Julie. I'm happy to be here. Great, and congratulations on winning such a prestigious award. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm still in shock and overjoyed. (laughs) That's great. Um, Before we talk about your business journey, take me back to the days of when you were cooking with your grandmother and um, you launched a supper club, some type, (laughs) some form of supper club in high school. Tell me about it. Yeah, I... um... So I started cooking at a really young age. Um, My grandmother, who she uh, was a Holocaust survivor. And yes, she would be always cooking. Like she would host dinner parties and would always be so excited to showcase like all these dishes from her homeland that she wasn't able to 
really recreate because of all the you know diaspora and having to to move from mm -hmm. place to place so she was born in budapest and then lived in vienna and then under the nazi regime moved to paris briefly then under the vichy regime moved to morocco where she was in a, a camp for a, uh, like a few months and then made her way to argentina um and that's where she settled down and those were her roots um, and so really it was her longing for those tastes and those flavors from when she was a child. Um, and then also having more incorporation with Argentinian cuisine and in Argentina there's a lot of Italian flavors as well because there was a big group of Italians who migrated there. Um, and then when we made our way to the United States, my mom is from Mexico and my dad was born in Argentina and then moved to Mexico at a very young age. Um, our house was full of different flavors. And so every meal was always something new, something different. Um, it wasn't the traditional American staple. My lunches were always <laughs> very unique. When my Big Fat Greek Wedding came out, that movie, <laughs> there's that scene where she pulls out the Tupperware of moussaka and all the girls giggle because mm -hmm. it sounds like moussaka. <laughs> um, and, and that resonated with me because my mom would do similar things. She would send us Tupperwares. We never got like real like the sandwiches or like the mm -hmm. gushers and all these kids <laughs> all the got to crap. Eat. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I started actually making my own lunches and then. And I got to watch my grandmother make so many cool dishes. Mm -hmm. So I would sit there watching her in the kitchen. And then finally at like, I think seven or eight, I ended up asking her, can I help? And that's where she was like, oh, I've been waiting for this day, please. And like grabbed a stool and started making me do all the things she did not like to do. Okay. You had <laughs> so to like start at the my, bottom. Right. Getting my hands into things and stuff like that. Um, and then that allowed me to just continue being curious, you know, mm -hmm. the Food Network was out. And so I would watch so much Ina Garten, so much Barefoot Contessa, mm -hmm. so much Giada and Rachel Ray. And I would try all these things at home to the point where my mom would just be like, I'm going to buy groceries and you, f you figure it out. You've got all the meals for us because mm -hmm. my mom is, I love her, but she's not a very good cook. She does some things very, very well, mm -hmm. but for the most part. <laughs> it's not her favorite thing. Um, and so she would have me after school, she would call because she'd be doing running errands or doing stuff. And she would say, Danny, I need you to pull the chicken out. And then I'd be like, got it, understood. And she was like, okay, you've got it from here. Mm -hmm. I'll see you uh, closer to dinner. And then I would have dinner on the table. Um, and then in high school is when you know, all the people were like starting to party and like, you know, wanted to like go out and stuff. And my parents, lovingly said no you can't go to these parties no you shouldn't do these things mm -hmm. so what i ended up doing was inviting my friends over for dinner so trying to do all these new recipes that i wanted to do and wanted to learn some were really great some were really bad <laughs> but they were really good um <clears throat> excuse me jumping off points and so that's where I was able to do these supper clubs with that's them. That's really so, brave yeah. at that age. I bet you were really popular as a result. <laughs> I don't know about that, but certainly we were all well fed. <laughs> okay. Um, and then uh, tell me about what you studied in college. Yeah. Um, so I went to uh, Franklin University um, in Switzerland. Um, so my junior year of high school, I actually studied abroad in France. Um, and I got to be with a host family and 
another great moment um, that allowed me to connect with my host mom was cooking. So she would be in the kitchen and I would feel really terrible because I'd be not able to really speak a lot of French and I'd kind of be like sitting there and I'd say, can I help you in my broken French at the time? And she would absolutely say, yes, please help me. And she would show me how to do, you know, all these sauces, all these um, dressings and helping her make uh, French uh, style meals and for dinner. And that actually helped me with my French. Um, But from there, I decided I need to live in Europe. That's where I want to go. I don't want to be in the States. Um, And that's where I applied to Franklin University. But around my sophomore year, um, that's when I dedicated my uh, background to cultural or comparative literature and cultural studies. Mm -hmm. Um, But school was not for me. School was really hard. Um, And I actually started, uh, I took a class called the um, Cultures of Class and Cuisine. Mm -hmm. And it was with an amazing professor. Um, Her name is Sarah Steinert Barella. And she like taught you about all the foundational things about gastronomy. So terroir and, you know, how do we understand the taste of place and then reading a whole bunch of things that in my mind, I had no idea that people were writing about food like this, you Mm -hmm. know, something that I loved for so long. Um, And then I started reading uh, Anthony Bourdain's uh, memoir of Kitchen Confidential. Okay. And that's when I realized I need to go to culinary school. What am I doing here? Like, I should not be doing this. So I actually, at my sophomore year, I left um, and took a year uh, in between and ended up um, working at a an Italian restaurant. It's a chain called Biagi's. Um, and my parents had just moved to Iowa. So from California to Iowa, very shocking. <laughs> Lots of culture shock. Uh, but there I was able to start off as a host and then I made my way through the restaurant because I wanted to learn everything about the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they even let me have a line cook position. And so I was able to start working the line and being able to understand from garmange to, you know, the hot side. And that's when I applied to the Culinary Institute of America. So was that your goal to become a cook at that restaurant when you first started there? Or were you just willing to do whatever? I was willing to do whatever. Honestly, at that point, I was looking for something to do (laughs) Mm -hmm. because my parents were like, you need if you're not going to go to college, like you need to figure something out, like what's happening here. Um, And so that's where um, I just got this host job and I loved it. I loved everything. I loved watching how the restaurant flowed, how you know, you engage with customers Mm -hmm. and really create an experience. And then I started trying things at my own house after seeing it on the menu and like bypassing things in the restaurant, like whenever we move things from the past, um, I'd see how the line cooks were doing it. And so then I started applying a lot of those things at home. And I was like, I can do this. Let's figure it out. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's great. And then you went to the Culinary Institute. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's where I studied uh, culinary arts as my associates. And um, I loved it. I loved the CIA. I loved Hyde Park, um, New York. That's where I was on the New York campus, which Mm -hmm. is literally the Hogwarts of the culinary (laughs) space. Like, oh my gosh. Like you walk in there and there's Farkasin Hall, which literally feels like the dining room in Hogwarts, except for like the, the ceiling isn't like, you know, a starry sky. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was so cool. You know, you've got all these people walking around and they're chef whites. And then 
um, you know, they have a strict uh, <laughs> uh, uniform where you're either in your chef whites or in business casual and I hate business casual or business professional. Like I hate mm-hmm. wearing anything that isn't leggings to be quite honest <laughs> um, or chef pants really. And so I'd always be in my chef whites and it was amazing because you get to learn all the fundamentals, but then also you got to experience all these different types of cuisines. So mm-hmm. like you do cuisines of the Americas, cuisines of Asia's, cuisines of the Mediterranean. Um, now they incorporated cuisines of Africa, which I wish I had that then, uh-huh. um, but I'm really glad that they brought it in to their curriculum. Um, so it was a really great experience and it led me to, really to Chicago because I got to extern at um, Chef Stephanie Eisert's Girl in the Goat Okay. Um, and I got to work with her and, you know, that was also an amazing experience of, you know, high volume fine dining. Mm-hmm. Did you wear a lot of hats there or what, what specifically did you do? That one, I um, started as a prep cook okay. and then um, within like a week, I they do all of their butchering in-house. Wow. And... I, I don't know if many people are familiar with Stephanie Eisard's menu and what she chooses for her meats, um, but she does from, you know, offals, so like your sweetbreads and like okay. your beef tongue and things like that to, um, you know, pretty standard cuts as well. She has an amazing pork shank um, dish on her menu, but also the one that's like iconic is the pig's face. And so you they would receive whole pig heads mm-hmm. um and there were like i think over a hundred every week and you would just see all the butchers just like fabricating those um pig heads right then and there um and getting it started on the process and i remember that, that was the day when i saw the first shipment i said i want to be a butcher i want to learn how to do this okay um and so i asked and that's where i was able to you know start off in that space and i got to learn so much about fabrication from mm-hmm. not only like you know, your beef and pork, but also like fish fabrication and then how to prepare them. So that way it's all edible too. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then Uh, I worked the line as well. That sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. So how did you end up at the flowered apron? Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, The flowered apron was a nonprofit organization um, that was a job training program for women from underserved communities. Mm -hmm. Um, so after I had worked in several restaurants, um, I was burnt out like most chefs, you know, it, it's a really unsustainable model and it's low pay, long hours, you know, you are passionate for a long period of time doing it. However, the more you force the line cooks and those who are responsible for preparing those meals to work these really hard hours under extreme conditions that spark you know Mm -hmm. can go out and that's what happened to me um and so i ended up going and starting to work as um a culinary um manager for a local kids culinary school Mm -hmm. in chicago um i developed their curriculum and helped them teach 18 months olds to 18 month olds to teenagers on how to cook and that was so fun because mm-hmm. um, I got to take a step back from really the high pressure kitchen and then starting from scratch, you know, f- trying to find why I loved cooking again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really fun to be able to watch these kids experience food for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a lot of experience of building out that curriculum 
And then there was this nonprofit um, that's put out a search for a culinary manager and instructor. So okay. then I ended up jumping at that opportunity um, and started teaching these incredible women how to bake um, and really setting a path for them so that way they could have secure employment because a lot of them have come from really hard backgrounds mm -hmm. where you know they weren't given an opportunity or they were just at the wrong place at the wrong time mm -hmm. and it you know trajected their whole career mm -hmm. um, or really their life in general um, and so that's where I was able to work with them to teach them about baking but then I also not only was I their instructor I was their social worker Okay. Um, I was, you know, their confidant. I was their resources. I remember vividly that I actually ended up taking one of my students to Planned Parenthood to get an abortion. Oh, um, wow. And, you know, helping her navigate that because, you know, she didn't want to do it, but she had to. That was the yeah. only choice she had. Um, and then also, you know, being there for them when no one else would. Yeah. Um, and we were actually in the process of getting into more accounts and like building more sales because as a nonprofit for what we did, it was really unsustainable to constantly be fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, and so we needed a steady stream of revenue. And um, unfortunately, you know, for all of the things that I was trying to get us to do so that way we could have like our granola in stores or, right. you know, do more catering and baked goods for, for people because we had all of the um, the students making these amazing cakes and cookies and bars. So if we could sell them so that way we could raise more funds to support yeah. these amazing women and continue the program, um, it could have been possible. But our board, unfortunately, decided that, you know, it wasn't worth the work to do. Okay. Um, so that's when they decided to close the flower and apron oh. and so we were we had to shut our doors and it was probably one of the hardest experiences no matter how many kitchens I've worked in where you're in you know high temperatures high stakes high pressure those were not comparable to this experience because mm -hmm. it was so many women that we were unable to serve anymore right okay so where did you go from there how did you wind up at the hatchery um so I was very lost <laughs> mm -hmm. um, because I really didn't know what to do next, you know. Um, and I saw, I had heard about the hatchery uh, because of some of the things that I was trying to launch um, with our, um, our nonprofit, The Flowered Apron. And I was looking on their website to see what classes that they had going on because maybe that would spark some mm -hmm. some innovation or like some some idea for me of where to go. Um, and then I ended up seeing that they had this uh, role uh, to join them. So I applied and I met with Natalie Schmulik, who's mm -hmm. um, the chief strategy and incubation officer. And she and I had an interview that I had never had with any business before. Like any interview I've had has always been, you know, tell me about your, you know, your work history and mm -hmm. um, why you want to work here. You know, for her, it ended up being a an hour and a half conversation about food okay. where we talked about everything from gastronomy to what is important about food. And I left 
feeling, oh my goodness, did I, did I get that job? Do I have that job? Did I, <laughs> did I waste it by talking about all these things that I'm interested in? Um, and then within a minute, or not a minute, within a week, I got a response from Natalie saying, I'd love to bring you on. Um, I think you'd be a great fit for the hatchery to help us drive our mission. Mm -hmm. um, so I joined in June, or I'm sorry, July of 2019. Okay. And I started building a curriculum for entrepreneurs. That's great. Now tell me, are the entrepreneurs um, that are taking these courses, are, do they already have um, a little bit of a business going? Are some maybe considering going into business? Tell me about how early stage these companies are. Yes, they typically do have um, an idea or even a recipe. So okay. they'll come to us because we host a monthly class called Starting a Food Business. Okay. And that's where it's pretty organic, where entrepreneurs will come because they'll have an idea and they want to see where to go with it. Mm -hmm. And so it's a two-hour class where we talk about everything in the industry. So from, you know, financing and all of your production costs and really things that you need to consider before entering this amazing but costly industry mm -hmm. to building a brand and, you know, what have successful brands done. And so after the two hours, that's where we get to actually talk with these folks who have attended the classes and they say, this is what I want to do. Do you think this makes sense? And then we're able to have them join a program that's called the Sprouts Incubation Program. And that's where we are able to help them with the roadmap of getting from that idea to creating the prototype, getting the licenses and certificates that they need, building a business plan, um, and really budget towards all of their initial startup costs. Um, and the reason we do this at the front of their business is because we've seen so many people spend their life savings on something that they don't know is gonna work. Okay. And at the hatchery, we're, in a neighborhood that is such a beautifully untapped neighborhood of talent, but it's often overlooked by the city of Chicago. It's the West Side. Mm -hmm. um, and it has so many, like I said, great people that have an idea or have such deep culinary roots too. And so a lot of the things that they have to do is they have to go all the way downtown to access the resources or they have to go into several neighborhoods that are daunting in order to be successful or to find out how they can get started. And so mm -hmm. our reason for being on the west side of Chicago is that we wanted to bring those resources directly to them so that way they didn't have to spend you know, $10 going and taking a train to only get pay more to get a bus to get somewhere, right. right, to just find the free resources that they need. A lot of them, those $10 make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so our focus is to have all this information up front for them so that way they can see this is what needs to happen. Okay. Um, and we do work with a nonprofit micro lending organization called Allies for Community Business. They're part of our joint venture. Um, with ICNC, which is an incubator that's been around for over 50 years and has incredible knowledge in how to help, you know, businesses grow and economic development. Um, and that's a really great, those are two really great resources because it helps these entrepreneurs who are on the West side have access to capital, mm -hmm. you know, have access to financial advising and really have an understanding of 
things that aren't taught in school anymore. Like no one talks about budgeting or, you know, right. how to really understand your finances and to grow your your wealth. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's a lot of the stuff that we get to work with people and help them understand so that way they can have a successful food and beverage business. Are you able to work with any of the women that you worked with at the Flowered Apron now at the Hatchery? Yes. Oh, I, that's I great. Yes, it's been really, really awesome because when the Flowered Apron closed um, and I joined the Hatchery, all of my students and my graduates, they wanted to have their own businesses. That was one of their dreams. And unfortunately, especially for women of color, those resources and opportunities are very hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, raising capital for someone like you know a white man is relatively easy. For mm-hmm. white women, it is it's still hard, harder. but yeah. it's it's available. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for women of color, it's non-existent. And so for for them, it was a dream, but it was only going to stay a dream. And so whenever I joined, I ended up reaching out to several of those graduates to say, hey, there's this great resource out here, and I'd love to help you um, to see if, you know, coming to a couple of classes. So I was able to pay for some of their classes and also uh, provide them some hands-on guidance on how to structure their business plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them tried it and they realize entrepreneurship is not for them and that's okay because being an entrepreneur is really, really hard. Um, I did have two that ended up uh, closing their their businesses or closing their ideas uh, because the businesses were just really early, Mm -hmm. Um, but they wanted to continue, you know, helping and learning about the startup life. So they've actually worked for some of our entrepreneurs on site at the hatchery too. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. So where do you come up with ideas for the curriculum? Are you getting ideas from the entrepreneurs themselves? You know, I need help in this area. Can you put something together? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with um, speaking with entrepreneurs. I actually, when I first started, a lot of my topics were on things that I wanted to know when I was Mm -hmm. trying to help out the flowered apron. Um, And then in that starting a food business class that we run we get a lot of questions at the end where people are asking us you know well how do i do xyz and those are those moments where you know listening to them and hearing okay that's an interesting topic and no one is talking about that so helping them navigate that as well so a lot of it is really just leaning on the budding entrepreneurs and seeing where they'll take us with a lot of this curriculum. What are some examples of topics that they're coming to you asking about? So a lot of people ask us about um, finding a co-packer or a contract Mm -hmm. manufacturer, which then tends to open up the question of, okay, well, what is your purpose of getting um, a co-packer, co-manufacturer, and then mm-hmm. they'll say, oh, it's because I want to get into this store and this store and this store. Oh, so you really want to be re- like retail ready. Yes, I want to be retail ready. Okay, well, are, does, do you have packaging for your product? No, I have no packaging. Okay, well, we need to start there, mm-hmm. right? So we've done classics, classes on packaging basics as well as, you know, getting ready to retail. Um, so, you know, helping them 
understand having a sell sheet, putting together a pitch deck, mm -hmm. um, and as well as food safety. That is one of the biggest ones that no one ever asks questions about. Um, they <laughs> so get, important, though. Right? It's so important, but they get very excited about all the other things first. Um, but then, you know, we have to ask them, well, have, do you have a food safety plan or have you developed a HACCP plan, especially if they're in like the perishable or, mm -hmm. you know, frozen space, what are they looking to do? Anything that isn't, you know, shelf stable. Um, so that's a lot of the classes that we'll develop as well. And then, um, we do some classes on finances too. So, you know, how to put together a PNL, how to, um, understand you know your lines of revenue and how to seek investments as well so really it's a lot of classes a lot of things that we're covering okay um can you tell me about some success stories are there some brands that stand out in your mind as mm -hmm. having been particularly successful yes um so while I've been there I've been able to just see so many companies just grow uh, so I've had um, one company called Gifted Breads that she's making artisanal, uh, delicious, gluten-free breads. And not like, you know, your sandwich breads, like your sliced breads. Like it's actually making baguettes and dinner rolls. And I've tried those. Yes. I tasted those. I think it was at last year's yes. winter show. And I ended up ordering a case of them oh my because God. my son... Um, you know, he doesn't tolerate gluten. So, um, yeah, those are really tasty. Yes. <laughs> I've tried them. Yes, Tati is amazing. She's a phenomenal uh, person, just human in general, but she's also so smart. Um, and then also really solving this big problem. You know, there mm -hmm. aren't delicious breads out there right. for people with celiac disease. Mm -hmm. And so we actually were able to bring her to the fancy food show with us as part of Incubator Village last year mm -hmm. and since then you know we've seen her she's been really taking off so that's so exciting yeah I yeah i tasted the sample of the show and it was so delicious i said i have to order these so yeah no they're so, great. so good um another great company that we've been able to work with is uh ao foods they actually joined our sprouts incubator program and that's for companies that you know just have an idea and then mm -hmm. helping them really build that roadmap. Um, so they joined in January of 2019. It was, or no, sorry, uh, January of 2020, which was right before the pandemic. And they're making incredible African-inspired frozen meals. Um, so that way they could help people really understand the beautiful flavors that are coming out of Africa. Mm -hmm. And they started with, you know, um, some familiar uh, dishes like jollof rice and agusi stew, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. But um, those are things that you could quickly pop into your microwave. Um, and they were one of the first frozen, frozen companies, um, like ready to eat meals that we, well, that I had personally worked with. And so helping them navigate that while learning Mm -hmm. about that space was eye-opening but so incredible uh, but Pertit and Fred they are the founders and they're a married couple and they really just took that business and ran with it it was incredible to see and so they uh, graduated our incubator program and now were at that point they had entered I think all of 
the southwest regions of Whole Foods. And so from there, they have just been able to get into so many different retailers. And now they're working with James Beard award-winning chefs from you know African backgrounds to really bring more flavors to the market. So really opening palettes for people um, to understand African cuisine because it's so diverse and it's so delicious. There's so many flavors there, mm-hmm. and they're also lining or launching lines of sauces as well too. So really, it's been incredible. Oh, that's so great. That's wonderful. It must feel so good to help brands like that. Um, but we're almost out of time. But before we go, I'd like you to take part in our take five segment where we ask our guests five questions. But first, let's pause for a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, so here are your five questions for our final segment, Take Five. What's your favorite thing about the specialty food industry? Oh, I love the community. I love coming here and getting to meet all of the makers and all of the creative people who are really impacting change in this industry and working towards bringing innovation here. You know, one of the things that I love about specialty food is that you get to taste so many different flavors from all around the world. Mm -hmm. And what do you like most about being a specialty food association member? The access to resources. The SFA does such a great job to, you know, put together these classes and really they're such good pieces for us from a national level to really help out on some of these topics for our entrepreneurs. So we focus primarily on like the Chicago area and things that um, entrepreneurs need in order to be successful. But then there's, you know, the classes like the basic series that happened on Monday, right? Saturday. Saturday. Oh my gosh, what is time? (laughs) Um, While we were at the Fancy Food Show, it was such a good session where you have so many different topics that are so important for people who are starting a food business. Um, And then I constantly look at um, the co-manufacturing directory that is put together. I know that that was recently republished again in 2022, which was has been awesome. It's been so helpful for a lot of our emerging brands, especially in the Midwest region who, you know, maybe they can't keep producing out of their private kitchen in order to grow. So they need to 
find someone immediately to help grow their business before they build out their own manufacturing site or if that is even something they'd like to do. And if you weren't helping small businesses, what would you be doing? <laughs> um, I think I'm torn between two options. Okay. I mean, ideally, in the perfect world, I would be the female Anthony Bourdain and getting to travel <laughs> the world and taste everything and talking about everything and meeting new people and getting to showcase cultures. But realistically, um, I think I would um, love to be an entrepreneur again and launch a, launch a business in this amazing, amazing space. Okay, good answer. What's the one piece of advice you'd give a new food business or do you give new food businesses? Always ask. You always ask the question, even if in your mind... You know, you're like, should I even be asking this? Like, will they think that I shouldn't be? Always ask. Because worst case scenario, they say no or, you know, they don't have the answer for you. And that's fine. But then you know because some of the best things that have happened to me and to many entrepreneurs that I know is that they've asked for that help. They've asked for that contact, right? They've asked Mm -hmm. for that opportunity. And then it leads them down a path of so much success. Mm-hmm. And how do you define specialty food? Oh, man. Specialty food is an experience. You know, it takes you on a journey, whether it's the founder's journey, whether it's a regional journey, whether it's an ingredient journey. It's always going to be something really fun. It's going to be an experience. Definitely. A big thank you to Danny Zukovicki for joining us today. You can find out more about this show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And remember to follow wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people who are shaping the future of food. Special thanks to Danny and to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. This is Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast. Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.